uh, if you haven't been with us for the past few weeks, uh, we've been talking about integrating a brand new perspective uh, into our lives uh, by which we would look at life and, and a brand new framework uh, by which if we adopted it, it would really change the way that we live our lives. Uh, it's an adjustment. Uh, it's a small tweak. It's a small change. Uh, it's a small addition to your life and to my life that can have big consequences to it. Uh, it can radically change the quality and the direction of your life and my life. And, and it's found in the words of Moses. I've been giving you these uh, particular words week in and week out because I hope it gets in your mind and I hope it gets in your heart. And I hope you find yourself speaking these words because I do think that it has the capacity to change our lives. And this is what Moses said. He said, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, this is a prayer that Moses seemed to implement into his life. This was, this was a mechanism that he applied uh, to his life, and, and he discovered that there was great value in it, and that it did change the quality and the direction of his life, and he was so confident about it, he, he wanted to offload it to everybody else. And according to Moses, if you've been here, you know this, but if you haven't, th this, is, this is new for you, and it's worth you hearing. Uh, Moses believed that if we count our days it will better ensure that our days will count. Because if we wake up every day, imagine this, if, if we woke up, the first thing we do when we woke up in bed every day was we thought those words, Lord, teach me to number my days so that I may have a heart of wisdom. Uh, it, it's a mentality that helps us to make the most of our days. Uh, it's a mentality, a framework, a posture, an attitude. Uh, it's a perspective that says, you know what? I'm anchoring myself to this day. God has allowed me to wake up. God has given me this day. Uh, yesterday is past. I, I can't go back. I can't undo it. I can't edit it. Uh, I, I can't do any of that. Yesterday's gone. Today's all I've got. Tomorrow, I hope it comes. It may not come. Uh, so in light of the fact that it may not, I'm going to see today as a gift, and I do not want to waste it. I want to live it. I want to make the most of it. I want to seize every opportunity that I have today to take a step in the direction of faith, in the direction of God, in the direction of love, in the direction of better, in the direction of change. That has the capacity to make tomorrow better. And so Moses seems to believe that if we institutionalize this, uh, this is just not a sermon series that hopefully, you know, when we wrap it up next week, we just kind of move on. Uh, this is something that I hope that you write down, you put it in your phone, you start training yourself when you wake up. Lord, teach me to number my days. And even go online, you can Google it. You can figure out how many days you, you've been around, 16,741 for me today. So God, teach me to number my days. Remind me that yesterday's over. Remind me that tomorrow may not come. And God, help me not to waste this gift, this special occasion that's today. And so Moses says, if you institutionalize this, if you integrate this perspective, this, this idea, this, this mechanism, uh, this routine, this rhythm, you're gonna find a greater sense of inspiration to live your life. Because when you count your days, you're reminded that you may not have many days, you may not have another day. So in confrontation with the reality of death, you find this great inspiration to live because nothing inspires us to live like the reality of death. Now, Moses, he goes on to say, not only do we get inspired to live when we confront the reality of death, whether it's your death or my death, he says we also get wisdom. And wisdom, as we've been talking about, it makes us better at life. And when we get better at life, life just seems to get better. So he says, if you number your days, 
you find an inspiration to live. And if you number your days, you find wisdom. So Moses obviously was a man of great insight. And, and somewhere along the course of his life, you know, whether in the first 40 years in Egypt or the second 40 on the backside, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep or the 40 in the wilderness, somewhere along the course of his life, he discovered how important and how valuable it was to number our days. Because he seemed to figure out that counting the days of our life puts more life in our life. Uh, let's all just read this out loud together. Ready, everybody? Let's go. Counting the days of our life puts more life in our life. So when you count your days and I count my days, it puts more life in our life. And that's ultimately what we all want. We want more life in our life. Now, Jesus, during his life, he talked a lot about life. Uh, Jesus referred to his words as words of life. Jesus said, whoever finds me, finds life. Jesus said, if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will find life. Jesus referred to himself as the water of life, the bread of life, the resurrection and the life. Jesus even went so far to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I've come to give eternal life, but not only eternal life, but I've come to give those who will follow me a rich and satisfying life, a life that is so full that it overflows into the lives of other people. Jesus said, I have come to offer you and me a life of freedom, a life of contentment, a remarkable, exceptional, extraordinary version and experience with life. You've heard it referred to perhaps as the abundant life, a life of significance, a life greater than we could ever ask for, a life greater than we could ever imagine for ourselves. Now, that's a pretty big picture of what Jesus said he came to offer, but, but here's my question for us. How many of us, if we were being honest, how many of us would describe our life in those words? How many of us would say, you know what? I'm living a remarkable, exceptional, extraordinary life, a life of significance. I'm living a life of meaning, a life of purpose. I'm living a life greater than I could ever imagine for myself. There's so much fulfillment, so much contentment, so much excitement, so much passion. Now, I've lived long enough to know, and you've lived long enough to know that tragically, there are too many of us who would say, you know what? I wish I could say that. I want to say that, but for whatever reason, I don't think that I could say that describes my life. I don't think that I would describe it as remarkable, extraordinary, exceptional. It seems to lack fulfillment. It seems to lack contentment. It, 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 seems, it seems to be lacking. So here's another question. Why are we willing then to settle for less when Jesus said, I'm offering so much more? And to settle for less when Jesus offers more, that's just tragic. It's worse than unfortunate. It's, it's a tragedy. Here's Jesus' words on the matter. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life. And, and there it is. I, that they may have life and have it to the full. And you can do this just as easy as I can. You, you can go find out what Jesus meant. You, you can find out what the Greek means. You can figure out that this means remarkable, exceptional, extraordinary. It's rich. It's satisfying. It's fulfilling. This is a life that's so full, it, it literally spreads out into the lives of other people. 
And according to Jesus, this life, this full life, when you read Jesus in the Gospels, it's very evident that this life begins with faith. It's characterized by faith. And faith, when it's integrated into all the layers and all the segments of your life and your life and your life and my life and our life, and that's the way faith is supposed to be. Faith is not a compartment. Faith is not a drawer. Faith is not a lane. Faith is not the private part of your life. It's not just one part of our life. Faith is something that is so powerful, so profound, so influential that faith by its very nature is supposed to be integrated into all the other areas of our life. It begins to diffuse into all the layers of our life. And as faith integrates into the way that we think and the way that we see and the way that we hear and the way that we feel and the way that we live, the choices we make, the relationships we have, as faith begins to integrate into all the things that make up our life, the way that we see people, the way that we see God, the way that we think of our job, the way that we think of the unfortunate moments of life, the way that we think about pain, the way that we think about suffering, the way that we think about goodness and the way that we think about beauty. He says, as faith integrates into our lives the way that it's supposed to, what happens is there's a result of that. And what results is peace. A peace that really the culture doesn't understand. Uh, peace that really we can't understand from a human perspective because it's, it's a divine gift. It's life that Christ gives to us. It, it begins with faith, but it results in peace. It's peace that even when you're going through hell, you can't really explain it, but you kind of, you're kind of calm. You, you still got it together. Life's falling apart, but you're not. It results in joy, enthusiasm, passion. Not that it's contingent on what's happening, because this is a type of faith that says, you know what? I can be good even when things aren't good. And I can have joy even when it seems like the circumstances don't have a lot of joy intertwined in those circumstances. It results in hope. It results in love. It results in passion. It results in energy. Jesus said, this is the type of life I'm offering. It's life to the full. And it begins with faith, and that faith diffuses all throughout our life. And then we're left with a quality of life, a fullness of life, an abundant life, a quality of life that transcends the circumstances of life. We don't live enslaved to what happens. We don't constantly ride the roller coaster of life. When things are good, I'm good. When things are bad, I'm bad. We, we're not held hostage to what people say to us or say about us. We're not held hostage to what people think about us. We're not held hostage to what's happening halfway around the world or what's happening in our neighborhood or what's happening in our state or what's happening in our nation. It's a quality of life. It's a fullness of life. It's an extraordinary version of life that transcends the circumstances of life. And, and Jesus, when you follow Jesus through the gospels, you find out real clear what this life looks like. He says it's a life that shows mercy. When you show mercy to someone who needs mercy, there's something life-giving about that. When you give grace to someone who doesn't deserve grace, and that's what grace is. It's what we give to someone who doesn't deserve it. It's what God gave to us when we didn't deserve it. And Jesus said, when you give grace to people who don't deserve it, there's something life-giving about that. When your life has meaning and purpose, there's something that's life-giving about that. If you feel like your life is meaningless, if you feel like your life has no point, there's no life in that 
But when you realize you were made on purpose for a purpose and your life has meaning, there's life in that. There's enthusiasm in that. There's joy in that. It's a life of fulfillment. You don't go through life thinking, oh, something's missing or someone's missing. You're fulfilled. It's a life connected to God. It's a life that has meaningful connection to other people. It's a life of selflessness. It's a life that prefers others over ourselves. And in a world that promotes selfishness, celebrates selfishness, Jesus said, when you choose to be selfless, when you choose to prefer somebody else over yourself, you're gonna discover that's life-giving. When you choose to live a life of contribution and you discover that greatness is learning to serve, serve something greater than yourself, to serve others, Jesus said, you're gonna have more life in your life. You're gonna discover a life of just not success, but significance. It's a life of gratitude when you constantly, consistently reach for what's good, focus on what's good, because in two weeks we're gonna start a series that I'm so excited about called Change Your Mind. And we're gonna spend some time talking about what we focus on, it determines how we feel. And gratitude, the reason that gratitude is so powerful, it forces us to focus on what's good and what's right. You can always reach for what's wrong and what's not good. But Jesus said, when you decide to focus on what's good and you acknowledge it and you're grateful for it, there's more life in your life. When you have a life that you build into the rhythm of that life, a, an appreciation of life, you number your days, there's a celebration for life because you know you only have so many days, there's life with that. And so again, I ask the question, why do so many of us settle for less than what Jesus said I'm offering? Let me ask it this way. If Jesus came to offer us a better life, why do so many of us settle for a lesser life? Why? Maybe this is the reason that the church in the West, maybe in this country has lost influence. Because when the culture and the world looks at those who are verbally, you know, acknowledging we're followers of Jesus, but there seems to be no life in their life, there seems to be no peace and no joy and no passion and no purpose and no meaning, the last thing they think of is remarkable, extraordinary, exceptional. They don't see significance, they don't see contribution, they don't see service, they don't see grace, they don't see mercy, they don't see love. Perhaps that's the reason why many people aren't attracted to what we say we believe. So why do we settle for less when Jesus offers us better? And Jesus, he actually answered the question. He says, the thief, the thief. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, this is not an out. This is not an excuse. This is not an obfuscation of responsibility. He says, the thief will still kill and destroy if you allow it. Jesus says, I've given it to you, and it's yours. You possess it. It belongs to you. But if you want to let a thief take it, if you don't watch out, you'll give it away. You'll forfeit it. There's a thief, there's thieves which want to do nothing more, nothing less than steal, kill, and destroy the life that Jesus said, I've come to offer. And when we allow it, they rob us of this full life, this abundant life, this extraordinary, exceptional, remarkable life, this purpose, this meaning. Jesus said, if we allow it, the thief will come in and steal, kill, and destroy. Now, Jesus, all throughout his 
teaching ministry, he addressed certain thieves and certain enemies that we at times forfeit life to. We forfeit a large portion of our day to. And as you know, when we forfeit a day, we forfeit our life. And when you forfeit too many days over the course of a lifetime, you have forfeited a vast part of the life, the gift of life that God gave you and gave me. And so today, here's what I want to do. I want to spend a few minutes, and I just want to talk about a couple of enemies that I think that too many of us are prone to forfeit our days to. We forfeit our life to. And when we forfeit days and when we forfeit our life, those are things we can't get back. Those, those are things we can't undo. We can't edit. So I want to talk about a couple of those. And, and the first one is something that I believe that our culture is currently intoxicated with. This is something that I see very much outside the church, but unfortunately, tragically, worst of all, I see it very much inside the church. And it's hate. Hate is a thief. And it will take the life, the full life, the abundant life, the extraordinary life. It will rob you of that life if we allow it. Now, hate's a cancer. It infects our mind, it infects our soul, it, it infects our relationship, it just takes over. And here's the thing about hate, it's like faith, it can't be compartmentalized. You can't just file hate under one heading. You just can't file hate under one name or under one group. Hate will never stay in its lane. Hate will never stay in its compartment. It will ultimately diffuse into all the other compartments and relationships of our life. It will begin to infuse itself into your perception, into your perspective, into your attitude. Hate is a dangerous thing. It pollutes our mind. It poisons our soul. It poisons our soul. Uh, one writer said that it's a, it's a cocktail of grief, fear, disgust, and resentment. And when you drink that cocktail, it's a hangover that lasts a while. The influence of that cocktail begins to make us sick on every level because hate is toxic. It corrupts, it, it sabotages, it undermines. And you know what we do? We rationalize it. When we want to hold on to hate, we find a reason to hold on to hate. And you know what hate does? Hate turns me into the worst version of myself. Hate turns you into the worst version of ourselves. Hate will turn the church into the worst version of itself. We'll become cruel and we'll become petty and we'll become bitter and resentful and irrational and irresponsible. We'll become unkind. We'll withhold grace. We'll withhold mercy. Let me tell you what hate does. It robs us of humanity. It limits our capacity to love. We want to think that we can hate over here and think that it will not affect how we love other people, but it will, and it does. It will limit your capacity and my capacity to love as Jesus said we're supposed to love, loving our neighbors ourselves, loving each other as Christ has loved us, that when we hold on to hate, when we harbor hate, when we allow hate to take root, and we don't even like to call it hate, and it's so easy to deny it, and it's so easy just to say, I don't struggle with hate, and, and we'll put a little softer term to it. But whenever we're holding on to hate, whether an overt form or a subtle form, it will limit your capacity to love God. It will limit my capacity to love my family. It will limit my capacity to love friends. It will limit my capacity to love my neighbor. And here's the thing about hate. It's a choice to suffer. If you hold on to hate, if I hold on to hate, you're choosing to suffer. You've heard it said, you know, hate is like swallowing poison. 
but expecting somebody else to die? Hate is choosing to suffer. Holding on to hate is choosing to needlessly suffer. And here's what Jesus said about it. Jesus said, you have heard, you've heard that, it was, that it's been said, that it is being said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And here's what Jesus was saying. This is from his Sermon on the Mount. He was saying, you know what the conventional wisdom of our day is. You've heard it talked about by people of faith. Love those who are your neighbor. In other words, love those who agree with you. Love those who believe like you. Love those who behave like you, who are with you, behind you, for you, support you, encourage you. Hey, love your neighbor. But you've also heard it said, but hate your enemy. I mean, that's what everybody thought. That was the conventional way to live your life. You love your neighbor, all the people basically that it's easy to love, your family, your close friends, everybody who's pretty much like you, who doesn't disagree with you on any significant level, who's not antagonistic against you in any way. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And those are the ones who, they're not like you. They don't behave like you want them to behave. They don't believe the way you want them to believe. Matter of fact, they may even be antagonistic to you, to your beliefs. They even may work against you. They may seek to sabotage you. Do you know who our enemies are? It's the people who've hurt us. It's the people who've wounded us and disappointed us and betrayed us and gossiped about us and slandered us. Our enemies are the ones who hate us, maligned us, sought to hurt us. Our enemy is the one who is spiteful. And it was understood in Jesus' day, well, you love your neighbor, but you hate your enemy. I mean, come on, that's just what you do. And Jesus would say to live like that, it will rob you of life. It's gonna make your life smaller. It's gonna make you smaller. It's gonna make you the worst version of yourself to live like that. He says, but I tell you, <laughs> I'm gonna flip conventional wisdom on its head. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm tell you, this was, this was emotional. This was confrontational. This was offensive. I mean, because you could put your enemy in the worst possible category and let yourself go emotionally there. Think about the person who hurt you the worst, hurt you the deepest, the person who did that thing, the person who said that thing, the person, that enemy. I mean, just make it the worst that you can possibly think of. And Jesus says, but I'm gonna tell you, if you're gonna follow me, and if you want a remarkable, extraordinary, exceptional life, you love your enemies and you pray for those who are your enemies. You love them. That's the test. <laughs> That's the challenge. And when you love them, you know what you're going to do? You're going to forgive them. Doesn't mean you have to be reconciled to them, but you forgive them. You let it go. When you love your enemies, you're willing to serve them. <sighs> well, I can forgive as long as I have to talk to them. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, knowing what Judas was plotting to do, and what Judas had in his heart, and that Judas set the very events in motion that would lead to Jesus's suffering and death. And in the upper room, Jesus served him and washed his feet. This was, this was hard. This was difficult. This is where the rubber meets the road. He says, you gotta do good for them. Do good to them. 
go the second mile for them. And, and people are just probably like some of you, you're protesting in your mind, but what about this and what about that? And I hope you're not meaning this. And I think Jesus, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he's pretty clear. And I think he says, yes, that's what I'm talking about. I want you to pray for them. Why pray for them? I think he probably meant pray for them out loud. Why? Because it's hard to hate for the person's name you're calling out to God to bless. God, I want you to bless him. I want you to bless her. God, I want you, God, to do good in their life. Not, God, I want their children to eat out of garbage bags. God, I want you to, you know, no, not that. It's hard to hate the person or the group of people that you're praying for. It's hard to wish harm on somebody you're praying for. It's hard to hold on to unforgiveness for the person you're praying for. It's hard to resent the person you're praying for. It's hard to be bitter towards the person you're praying for. It's hard to be angry to the person you're praying for. And Jesus said, this is powerful. When you're not sure what loving your enemy looks like, let me just tell you, pray for them. It will, it will become clearer and the dominoes will begin to fall into place. You start praying for your enemy, you'll forgive them. You start praying for your enemy, your heart will be such you're willing to serve them and do good to them. And I think here's what Jesus is saying. Learning to love your enemy is the ultimate lesson in learning to love. If you only love those that are easy to love, if you only love those who have loved you well, have you really learned to love? If we learn to love our enemies, Jesus said, we will better love our friends and we will better love our families and we will better love one another because in learning to love your enemy, you learn to truly love. He says, do this that you may be children of your father in heaven. In other words, don't let a misunderstanding about God, which had happened in those days, don't let a misunderstanding about God cause you to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Your heavenly father doesn't keep score. Neither should you. Do you know living a life where you keep score of who said what, who did this, who didn't, who showed up, who called, who texted? Do you know how miserable that is? Do you know how pitiful that is? Do you know how small of a life that is, whether it's me or whether it's you? To keep score, that doesn't bring life. That takes life. Your heavenly father doesn't withhold forgiveness. You can't either. He doesn't withhold grace or mercy or love. Neither should we who follow Jesus. God loved his enemies. How do you know? Because, well, the scripture says, I was one of them. And even while we were yet enemies of God, Christ loved us and died for us. And even Jesus, that we learned in Sunday school, many of us, many, many, many years ago, on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Who? Those who were killing him. Those who had strung him up on a Roman wooden cross, naked, beat him beyond recognition, crowned him with thorns, put nails in his wrist and through his feet. Forgive them. Jesus doesn't invite us to an easier way but he does invite us to a better way. 
And in the better way, there's life. Life rich and satisfying. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? He says, it's not easier, it's just better. This is the way, loving your enemies, praying, forgiving, showing grace, mercy. This is the way to a remarkable, extraordinary life of fulfillment, significance, and contribution. A life of passion and joy and meaning and purpose and peace and hope. To live otherwise is to give into the impulse of our culture. To hate those that are different. To hate those who are against. To hate those that we don't understand. To hate those that betray. To hate those who let us down. Jesus said, if you do that, if I do that, we forfeit our life to the thief who still, and he kills and he destroys. We allow life to be taken from us and it drains us of energy and life. And so there's hate. Uh, another thing that I think is a thief that many of us give uh, our life to, it, it's another thing that suffocates joy in our life. It upsets our peace. It, it paralyzes us uh, when it comes to living life. Um, it takes away our passion, our meaning, and our purpose. And, and many of us, we know what this struggle is. It's, it's worry and anxiety. I love what um, Chuck Swindoll said about worry and anxiety. We like to clean it up and call it stress. He said, it's probably one of the biggest risks we face. The more worried you are that you might get sick, the more likely it is that you will get sick or that you'll end up sicker or even dead from an illness that you might have survived if you just didn't worry so much. The more worried you are about the health of your heart, the more damage you do to your heart. The more worried you are about losing your memory, the more your memory fades. The list of damage that worry can do because of the biology of stress, it's long and scary, which means that not worrying more than we have to may be the best thing we can do for our health. The pressures of our times have many of us caught in the web listen, I love this, of the most acceptable yet energy-draining sin in the Christian family, worry. The stress from worry drains our energy, preoccupies our minds, stripping us of peace. Few in God's family are exempt. We, are over, we worry over big things and little things. Some of us have a laundry list of concerns that feed our addiction to worry. And for some of us, it's what it is. It's a habit. It's a rut. Anxiety has become a favorite pastime that we love to hate. But parents, grandparents, listen to this. And worse, we're passing it on to our children. As they see worry on our faces and they hear it from our lips, we're mentoring them in the art of anxiety. You know what worry is? Worry is fear. And basically we have two fears. Losing what we have and not getting what we want. I challenge you to come up with anything else. I mean, that's basically it. You can file it under those two things. Losing what I have, not getting what I want. And I worry so much, and I get so anxious about it. It's not an actual storm, but I experience it as an actual storm. What I'm worried about is not reality, but I experience it as reality. And then all of a sudden, I'm going through a battle that's not even a battle. I'm in a difficult spot that's not even a difficult spot. And I lose my laughter, I lose my joy. It turns everything to a darker shade. I'm preoccupied, I can't enjoy my kids, I can't enjoy my wife, I can't enjoy my husband, I can't enjoy my faith, I can't enjoy anything because it makes us hollow. And like hate, worry 
being anxious about what we can't control, it's a choice. It's a choice to suffer. It's going through life waiting for the other shoe to drop. And here's the thing about worry. It hijacks our imagination. It exploits our fears. Oh, what if the, what, what if, what if the market crashes? Well, what if North Korea gets a bomb? Uh, I mean, what, what if they die? What if I die? What if I get sick? What if they get sick? And, and then it's just a downward spiral. It's just a meteor shower of what ifs. Uh, a few months ago, uh, I decided to do uh, something I've been thinking about for a few years. I, you know, I hate, I hate doctors except for one. And, um, <laughs> and, and I, I'm scared of all things medical. I just don't like it. And I, I'm not... You know, I'm getting better about it, much better than a few years ago. But I, I, went, I went to Dallas, Texas for this, for this massive physical because they do everything in one day. All the results are in one day. You know, there's no waiting. You know, there's no, there's no having to, oh, my goodness, hope everything turns out okay. So I show up, took Allison with me. We show up first thing in the morning, and, you know, you, you show up fasted, and, you know, they, they take your blood. I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I gave so much of my life essence away to that lady. I, I mean, I literally could feel the platelets leaving my body. And, and, and I told her that, and she says, no, you can't. I said, yes, I can. And I, I can feel it. You know, the scriptures say the life of the body is in the blood. I feel life leaving my body right now. Uh, and, and so I had blood work. And then from the blood work, you, you go to a CT. And so they, they scan your whole body and, you know, looking for anything that's not supposed to be there. And then after the CT, uh, I went for another, you know, kind of just insignificant test. And then I go meet my doctor for the first time that I'm going to be with all day for about seven hours. And, and so while we're there, we're going through like this exhaustive medical history. She's asking me everything in the world, physical, mental, emotional, professional, all these things. And uh, while we're there, uh, she looks at me, and there's a screen on my side of the, of the desk looking at me, and she's got a screen on the other side looking at her. And she goes, oh, some of your CT results are in. Great. You know, I, I thought this was going to be the end of the day. And so she pulls it up, and what she's seeing, I see. Well, I wasn't born yesterday, and I'm a trained, trained, trained warrior at times. Uh, I know that a red flag is a red flag. And I hear nothing that she says because I want to know what is the red flag with my kidney and I want to know what the red flag with my liver is. I mean, automatically, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm getting ready to text Allison and tell the boys to come. I probably won't make it home uh, from Dallas. I, I, I mean, bring them, bring them. I need to tell them goodbye. And so, you know, she goes through and she goes, you got a kidney stone. She actually got six of them. I'm like, yeah, I, I keep those. I, you know, I, I kind of am a nursery for them. And, but that's no big deal. You know, and then she goes, oh, you know, you got a little cyst on your liver. And I, I mean, I was just went, I mean, I was like, I, I mean, I felt it was just a massive thing of heat up my body. I couldn't hear anything else. My pulse started like, I mean, I was just, I, I didn't, I, I just heard death. I just heard death. It was just, and, and, and then she was like going on like nonchalant. And I'm like, you need to comfort me. And, and then she was like, oh, it's time to go to cardiology for your stress test. I'm already stressed. <laughs> so I walk across the hall. I show up, take my shirt off. You got this girl who played college basketball. She's going to be doing all the tests. She puts on like 14, 15 different probes. And she goes, huh? I said, huh, what? She goes, your pulse is, did you run here from somewhere? She said, your pulse is like 131. I was like, I'm clinging to life right now. 
She goes, well, you got to get your pulse down before we can do this test. And so, you know, it's just, man, worry, stress, anxiety. What can I control? It's not a darn thing. And so I go outside, and after I finish my test, and I go tell Allison, and I was like, oh, my God, I got, I got, you need to sit down. And, and she was like, well, that's nothing. That's nothing. That's no big deal. And I was like, ah, but I feel like it is. And, and, and then later on, I go back to the doctor, and she was like, I told you it was no big deal. No, you flippin' didn't. I would have heard that. But I understand, it's easy to do this. It's easy to fall into a spiral. It's easy for any of us. And when it comes to worry, it's, it's, it's not saying that everything in the world's great. It's not saying everything in the world's gonna be okay. I mean, we live in a universe where, let's be honest, things can go wrong. Lots of things could go wrong. I mean, we're floating in space. We're going through space at 67,000 miles an hour, turning at 1,000 miles an hour. There's meteors going through space. Lots of things can happen. So let's be honest, things could go wrong, and we can worry. Like, I never thought about that till now, but now I'm kind of worried about things, Pastor. But worry's a choice, and sometimes it doesn't feel that way. But we give our joy, our peace, over to the thief. And Jesus said, here's what he said. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. <sighs> Easy for you to say. Do you have a CT, Jesus? <laughs> this is not a suggestion. This is actually a directive. He says, listen, worrying and being anxious, it's just going to take life from you. It's not worth forfeiting your life to because, hey, let's face it. What can you actually control in this situation? And Jesus looks out and sees a group of people who have long faces. They're worrying. They're anxious about life. And he says, do not worry. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothes? And in this day, this was like the most, this was the biggest thing you could ever worry about because it was hand to mouth. It was an agricultural kind of, kind of time in history where, hey, you, you gathered what you needed for that day and you didn't even know if you'd have more for tomorrow. And these things are important. Jesus said they are important, but don't worry about it. But Jesus, these are the most important things that I can worry about. Jesus said, don't worry about it. Is not your life more than what you're worried about? Well, yeah. Isn't life more than what you're fixated on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, don't worry. And it just seems like he made it too easy. But Jesus understood. Worry is forfeiting. Worry is choosing. It's trying to take tomorrow and bring it into today. And Jesus says, life is more than what you're worried about. See, our greatest worries reveal our greatest values. They tell a story. If we're constantly worried about money, we may ought to pay attention to that. If we're always worried about me and what people think about me and what's going to happen to me, maybe I should pay attention to that. If I'm always just worried about my kids and obsessing and fixating about what could happen to my kids, what might happen to my kids, then I should probably pay attention to that because maybe the values in my life have gotten out of balance. That when God is the greatest value, somehow there's something that happens when God is the greatest value that begins to help us to choose not to worry and be anxious. He says, look at the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, reap, store away barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus said, you're more valuable than a little animal with feathers. 
Birds aren't like us. They don't anticipate the future. You know what they do? They work hard. They go. They live. And they sing. They enjoy life. This is not about fatalism. Birds work hard. They fulfill their responsibility. But you know what? They live. He says, are you not much more valuable than they? He goes on. He says, can you go on to the next one? He says, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? What does worrying accomplish? And we're going to wrap it up right here. Give me, give, me, give me two minutes. Does worry change anything? Matter of fact, think about this. What can you control? Outcomes? Not so much. People? <laughs> mm. Your kids? You might want to think you can, but you can't. Can you control their choices, their behavior? Can you, can you control Congress? Can, can you control the nations? Can you, can you control what's happening, the cellular level of your body? Can, can you change the weather? Can you control it? No. Does your worry make anything better? Does it add life or take life? Jesus said it takes life, so don't worry. And why would you worry about clothes or these things? He goes on, he talks about the flowers of the field. They don't, they don't labor or spin. He said, yet I tell you, Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. Jesus says you're more valuable than the birds. You're more valuable than the flowers of the field. And you know what? You're God's treasure. And he already said that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And you are God's treasure. And if he takes care of the birds, if he takes care of the flowers, if he sees them, if he knows about them, and if he cares for them, how much more? Does he know about you, care about you, and love you? Jesus said, don't worry. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow's thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? So Jesus takes responsibility for the birds and for the flowers. Will he not take responsibility for you? Do you know why you worry, Trevor? You're trying to take responsibility for something you can't control. Do you know why you worry? You're trying to take responsibility for something you can't control. And Jesus says, you of little faith. Oh, that's, that's me. I'm such a little faither. It ticks me off sometimes. You know what faith is? I tell you all the time. It's confidence that God is who he says he is. He's going to do what he says he's going to do. And then integrating that into every part of life. But when I try to play God, when I try to control, pretend I can control things like God, it takes life from me. I can't control what people do, what they think, what they say. I can't control who gets sick and who doesn't or who gets healed and who doesn't. And I can't control any of that. Jesus gets to the end of Matthew 7, and I'll wrap it up here. And Jesus points out that foolishness, foolishness is a thief that all of us, from time to time, begins to forfeit our life to. And then Jesus tells the story about a wise man and a foolish man. And Jesus says, one who was wise heard my sayings, heard my teaching, and integrated it into his life. One was foolish, heard what I said, but disregarded it. Jesus said, life happened to both. There was a storm that happened to both. 
But the storm that happened to the wise man, perhaps the man who had been counting his days, he gained enough wisdom to know that the best thing I can do today is follow Jesus' words because his words are life. His way is life. And he built his house upon the rock, and when life happened, his house was still standing. But the foolish one, the one who did it his way, the one who just disregarded, the one who allowed the thieves of this world to take and to take and to take and to take. When life happened, great was the fall of that house. Jesus said, don't forfeit your life to foolishness, to doing it your way. That's what fools do. They go their own way. They do it their way. And you know what the judgment of God is? When God lets us have our way. That's it. Jesus said, don't forfeit your life. Don't give it away. I've come that you have remarkable, exceptional, extraordinary life. A life of fulfillment and significance. So take what I say and begin to integrate it into your life. And when you do, you're gonna find out that at times it's a hard thing to do, but it's the best, it's the better thing to do. It's the best thing to do because it will put more life in your life. So here's my question, and then I end it. What is holding you? What is holding you back from life? What are you forfeiting your life to? What is it? Fear? Worry? Anger, hate, unforgiveness, selfishness, pettiness, grudges, self-righteousness, lack of discipline, concern for what other people think, trying to control what you can't. What are you forfeiting your life to? Jesus said, if you want life in your life, take what I say and begin to live it out. And you'll find life like you've never experienced it before. Heavenly Father, I pray, God, that we'll take your words, your teaching, your, your example, your lead. And, God, that we'll just take just a few of the practical things we talked about today, God, to, to relinquish hate, to, to relinquish worry and anxiety, to stop with the foolishness of just trying to do it our way, and to follow your example, to follow your words, because your words are words of life. And when we're willing to lose our life for your sake, we find life, a remarkable life, an abundant life, a full life. So God, help us to hold on to that today and help us to take faith, a faith that diffuses into the way that we think and the way that we speak and the way that we see and the way that we hear, the way that we feel, the choices we make. Help us to build on you, our foundation. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's stand together and sing.